0: Hello and welcome to the Penguin Podcast, the place where our amazing authors explore how they get inspired through a series of objects they bring into the studio. I'm Katie Brand and today I'm joined by actress and author Sophie Aldred, best known for playing Doctor Who companion Ace. Sophie has written and narrated At Childhood's End, which sees her reprise her role as ace. Set in the present day, her character gets to meet the current 13th Doctor Who. Sophie Aldred, welcome to the Penguin Podcast. Thank Thank you very much. It's lovely to be here. Thank you. It's very exciting for you to be Mm. here. And I'm sure very exciting for a lot of Doctor Who fans out there. Uh, And I know you've chosen objects that inspire you, including your original ace jacket, Mm. a wooden desk and a special view, which we'll explore shortly. Can you tell us how writing your Doctor Who novel, At Childhood's End, came about? How was that suggested to you? So Steve Cole, who is a a fantastic editor and
1: writer and brings the world of Doctor Who to print. So Steve said, I've got this, this thing I want to talk to you about and told me about Tom Baker's novel. And it was an idea that Tom had had years ago during his tenure as the Doctor. And Steve said, we'd like to do you next. So I thought, wow, that's incredible. That's you know, fantastic, really, yeah. yeah. So Steve and me and um, uh, another old friend, Mike Tucker, who worked on visual effects in the series that I was doing in the 19, 1980s, we all met up I had just recorded the trailer for the Blu-ray set, which um, is coming out with Sylvester and me, which is our 26th season.
0: And, and Sylvester and, McCoy was your Doctor. yeah. And so they're, they're kind of extended, long-form episodes for for your original characters and your original relationship as the Doctor and Ace.
1: That's right. And not only that, but they have uh, all the outtakes, which are brilliant. I love Fantastic. outtakes. I yeah. love a good outtake. So we did a trailer for that with a guy called Pete McTigh, who is one of the writers for the new series, who loved the character of Ace. Mm. It was Ace now remembering what it was like Mm. and she and we filmed it um, and she's look she's gazing out of the window at the Tower of London because this is her this is her amazing smart office and then it says you know I hope that one day he'd be back and I mean oh and then she hears the noise of the TARDIS and then he's come back for her so I was able to bring that to Steve and Mike So you had all these strands of knowledge. So we had all these ideas and then they said oh yeah we were thinking something like that too. So we kind of we chucked all these
0: ideas in the pot. How did that process work creatively? Was it all quite even-handed or? Well I was very concerned that that the fans would get maximum value
1: as well. So we have made references to the old stories and we've also made references to other older uh, monsters and things like that and I don't really know them that well, but Mike and Steve, who have been Doctor Who fans all their lives, they were able to bring that too to it. Yes, because
0: uh, the book is set now, broadly speaking, isn't yes. it? And, and Ace is the age that she would naturally be now, having been a teenager in the late 80s. And, yes, And obviously... You can bend time to whatever, yeah, <laughs> whichever you want. absolutely. We could have you chosen w- anything. Yes, and so that's I, I found that an interesting decision to really say no. Ace is a mature woman, you know, who's who's working now still as we as we find in the book, extremely physically strong and fit and up for adventure and loves you know driving fast and all of that sort of thing. But was that important to you just personally, or was that just a a creative decision that you you responded to?
1: I think the thing about Ace is that her character's been explored in so many ways as a younger woman. I'm really intrigued, and I think that's what I always get asked at conventions as well, is, you know, what do you think Ace would be doing now? How would she have left the Doctor? What would she think of meeting the female Doctor? Yes, you know, And yes. that's really, for me, that was the sort of more interesting route to take, the kind of catalyst for that was the Sarah Jane adventures because mm. there was a tiny mention that Russell T. Davis put in there about yes, oh so, um there's somebody called Dorothy who's running a charity called A Charitable Earth.
0: And was he thinking of Ace when he wrote yes. that? Right. Okay. Yes.
1: It was a conversation about what are what are the companions that the doctor had, had? what are they doing now? Um so it was a very deliberate. Uh, sort of little ping by him because apparently what had been meant to happen to to the character was that she was going to go to Gallifrey and um, become a, a sort of a time lady, and mm-hmm. that would have been an interesting route. Yes,
0: and just just to clarify again, what the Sarah Jane Adventures is another
1: spin off. Yes. The Sarah Jane Adventures was conceived by Russell T. Davis, almost like a sort of a, a, a companion piece when Doctor Who came back. Uh, with a wonderful actress called Elizabeth Sladen, who'd played this character called Sarah Jane. She's the companion that I remember mm. growing up with. Um, Funnily
0: enough, you're the companion I remember growing oh, up with. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> Everyone's got their companion. Everyone's got <laughs> yes. their doctor, but also their yes, companion. Yes, their companion.
1: They? That sort of informed it as well. Like this interesting
0: idea of what happens to a Doctor Who companion when they grow up. Mm. And I really found it interesting in the book, just to go back to what you were saying before about meeting Jodie Whittaker's Doctor, it's interesting that you reflect a bit of that in the book with Ace's reaction to the fact that the the Doctor has regenerated Mm. as a woman. How did you feel, just you as a former companion and a part of the family, when you heard that they were actually going to do that, having talked about it for so long?
1: Well, I did think at last. Did you? Um, And I also wondered how it would work. Mm -hmm. I think it's absolutely brilliant and I think it's worked extremely well I'm often asked you know what what do you think Ace would make of of Jodie Whittaker's doctor or or all the doctors the new doctors you know who do you think she'd go best with and Mm -hmm. all that so I knew that this was an absolutely crucial scene and we we did several rewrites because I knew that it had to work really Mm. and um you know because knowing Ace is you know she's she can be quite cynical, quite resigned, quite hard bitten to actually have her be kind of quite taken aback and then not really believe that this is so. Um, so kind of typical ace have to test.
0: Mm. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> I found that very interesting sort of sense that the companion would be holding the doctor to account in some way.
1: Yes, and I think Ace always did. Uh, I'm thinking of The Curse of Fenric. She's, she has a speech. I, I, it's there because I, I I can't quite remember, but it, I've just seen it last week at the BFI, so I do remember. But she, she actually says you know you you're always telling you're always saying things but you never explain them and she shouts at him she says tell me mm. at one point and he does explain to her and and i think the difference that ace sees with jodie's doctor she is different she listens she is she's uh, she is warm i think she even apologizes at yeah. one point in your book she it? does yes yeah. ace is quite taken aback by that actually mm. Mm
0: having talked a lot about Ace there is this sort of fairly iconic part of Ace's look which takes us to your first object and that is mm. Ace's jacket. Yeah. So tell us about this the original sort of black bomber jacket with badges. Have you got that? Yes, you really I have. There were
1: several mm-hmm. there were two originally um but one didn't have all the badges on and then got into terrible trouble when we had a stunt and it got dirty and they said bring the other one on and they had to paint the the costume department had to take all the badges off one and put them on the other so they then bought doubles Mm -hmm. of most of the badges but I have the actual original one that I wore mostly and, um, and given I'm that very you still look exactly
0: the same, I presume oh, you, bless can, you. you can wear it if, <laughs> if you wish to. <laughs>
1: well, I can and I think anyone could because actually the only thing about the jacket is I made a bit of a mistake when, when we first... Because I designed my costume. I'd come from the world of children's theatre and sort of do it yourself and all that so I just sort of assumed that that's what you did you know <laughs> yeah. um, and then
0: a <laughs> like Doctor of... Who was a low budget Edinburgh yeah, well, Festival yes, it... <laughs> show <Yeah. laughs>
1: which actually was true but um, uh, the script editor when I first met him he, he looked at me at the read through and I was wearing cut off army shorts stripy socks Doc Martin boots I mean a bit like what I'm wearing mm. today actually and, and, um, and a stripy t-shirt and he said oh that's a really good look that's how I imagine Ace so so I took it like, okay, I'm going to design my own costume, and I looked through the Face magazine and all these trendy magazines, and I saw that girls in clubs were wearing these black bomber jackets. It was the Beastie Boys and all that. I don't know if you remember. Yeah. Um, with um, they used to nick those car plates off, v- off VW cars and mm-hmm. they hung them around their necks on I chains. Do, yeah. I thought mm, better not have that for Ace, but but for all the rest, you know, that, that was the look. Mm-hmm. And the badges were, a lot of them were my own,
0: so my two Blue Peter badges are proudly on there. Yes, and there's a line in the book that about all the galaxies the Blue Peter badges have gone to. I thought that was quite sweet.
1: <laughs> yes, yes, there's a, yeah, bit, a, quite a bit about Blue Peter in there because yeah. that, that was my favourite programme growing mm-hmm. up. And all sorts, the Dennis the Menace fan club and Fanderson and uh, all those sorts of badges. Um, so where and, do you keep it? Well, it's in a cupboard and it did for many years have a piece of paper in the pocket which said, um, please return to room so-and-so at the BBC. (laughs) But seeing as that room doesn't exist anymore, I think, well...
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's all right.
1: Yeah, I've looked room, after it.
0: That room's probably an ensuite bathroom in a very expensive flat that's exactly. been converted in a uh, yeah, yes. T V centre or something like that. So
1: I'm so glad I kept that. And and then occasionally people will ask me to bring it to a convention or I'll do a photo shoot in it. And my only regret is that I wanted a sort of bum freezer jacket. And when I when we got it, me and the costume designer Richard Croft, we, we went to um Oxford Street and, and bought it in some shop there. And it was, he said, Oh, we better get a large, I think. And it sort of bunched up. And I thought, Oh, yeah, that's okay. But actually, as the years went on, and I jumped into more freezing cold water and. Mm did stunts and everything. It went really baggy, so I ended up looking like the Michelin man on occasion. But it was very warm and I could put I had a pocket specially put into it so that I could have a hot water bottle in it. Oh, that's
0: nice. Because people sometimes don't realise when you're filming outside and it's freezing cold or raining, because rain doesn't really show up on camera. And you have to wear these things or sometimes not wear very much if the if the thing demands it. And you're confronted with the crew all in thermal jackets under umbrellas and you're just there like going I'm, I feel like I've taken a wrong turn with my career at some point. <laughs> yes. Any costume I look at now that involves flat shoes and a jacket I think oh, I'll do yeah. that. Well that
1: was another thing the Doc <laughs> Martens because I remember the Doctor Who assistants used to run around in high heels in quarries and then twist their ankles. Oh, duh! Yeah,
0: you yeah, know yeah. that's, that's going to happen so I thought no sensible shoes for running. We've talked a little bit about her personality and her being very forthright and outspoken but the whole look really broke the mould do you think? in yes, terms of the companion and, definitely. and was that just because that was what you were like or did you have any sense of deliberately wanted to do that to say something to young girls who were watching or is that just sort of a, a happy byproduct of it?
1: I think it was a bit of both plus the fact that um, Andrew Cartmell, as I said, the script editor, he was young and sort of trendy and he and I were were, were pretty keen on on reflecting what was happening in the 19, late 1980s with young women. I mean, I must admit, when I first went up for the audition, I thought, Doctor Who, don't you have to scream and and, and be a bit wimpy and say, mm. Doctor, what's happening? <laughs> and not understand anything. I thought, that's weird. That's not me. You found that slightly off-putting. I, well, not off-putting, but it was just like, "Why? why have they thought that I would be good for this? Yes. And then when I got the first script... Ah, it all made
0: sense. I thought so they well, had, this is news. It sounds like there was a kind of change of direction happening across the board on the, yes. particularly on the companion.
1: I I heard last week that the um Head of drama, I don't think he... He was sent the tapes, but I don't think he even ever watched it. (laughs) You know, he just, like, they'd given up on Doctor Who. So was basically, could get away with anything. So with my first story, uh, the writer came up with this sort of feisty character who wasn't wasn't the assistant. Bonnie Langford was the assistant playing this character called Mel. So Ace was meant to be just for this one episode. And Bonnie said she didn't realise, she thought you only did, like, one series or something. So she was like, yeah, bye! And they had to write her leaving scene on a napkin in the tea bar um, uh, <laughs> sort of just before they did it, because it was a last minute decision, really.
0: What, to switch just companions? To go, yeah,
1: just to go, OK, this is really working.
0: So as a result uh, of the scenes that you did in your episode as Ace, that was meant to be one episode, yeah. they suddenly pricked their ears up and thought, hang on, we've got something quite interesting going on here.
1: I think they'd would they been looking for a new companion just in case Bonnie was going to go. Mm. And uh, and then they realised that... Because um, Sylvester and I got on with each other like there's a house There's clear chemistry fire. as yeah. well, isn't there? Is mm.
0: that the episode where there's the map that they are looking at? Yes. In, uh, I see. And, yes. and actually you can see in that that there is a little twinkle between the two of you and you look like you're enjoying it. Yeah. Like you're enjoying being a bit... I think you sort of raise your... You know, you, you look... Like you're having quite a lot of fun,
1: actually. I was having such a great time. I'd never been in a TV studio before. I'd never I didn't even have a screen test for Doctor Who. It was sort of instinctive casting on the part of the producer.
0: And here we are now, thirty years later, talking yeah, about. Your another book. moment. Yes. Um mm. at Childhood's End. So would you mind just giving us a brief synopsis of the book? The first half probably is set in London.
1: You first see Ace and she's got this penthouse, apartment and offices of a charitable earth because we ran with Russell T Davis's sentence. Mm. She's now this multi-millionaire head of this charitable earth that does great works all around the world. Teenagers have gone missing, uh, sort of disaffected teenagers, a bit like Ace was herself. And she gets wind of these uh, disappearances that are going on and she's been having nightmares as well, and uh, and she connects th- suddenly. There's this connection with Perivale where she was brought up, and she goes, "Ah, oh, okay, better go back and have a look at this."
0: Because a lot of the disturbances have been happening in Perivale. That's right. Yes,
1: and um, and uh, and so she goes back to where she came from, where we actually filmed uh, one of our stories, and there's a lot of kind of references to that as well and does a bit of digging and then decides that she's got to get involved with this and goes to her secret bat cave, as she calls it, Mm. which is somewhere out past the Chilterns. And um, she's got this brilliant gadget that she's collected on her travels called Squidget, who I think is possibly going to be a bit of a hit.
0: Yeah, I love Squidget. Uh, Squidget is a kind of all-purpose tentacled creature that will basically fix any tech or engineering problem you may have. Just Can you it, imagine lady? that? Well, I don't need to imagine it because you've described it in the book, but <laughs> now you've described it, I want it. And and then it has also become known that there's some uh, strange object orbiting the moon. That's Is right. That- Suddenly, uh, th- the, this object
1: becomes visible. So Ace thinks, right, I've got to get there before anyone else does because the Chinese are, are threatening to get there very quickly. So she enlists the uh, the help of uh, uh, this old flame of hers, and they arrive on this weird uh, spaceship, which is kind of, it's it's not your yeah, normal metal and plastic. It's like a sort of fleshy, organic spaceship. But they, they get there because of Squidget.
0: And so they're on this UFO and there they find the reunion.
1: Yes, there they, she come, you know, suddenly she sees the TARDIS mm-hmm. and she comes across
0: the 13th Doctor and crew. So just to bring it to a close, the Doctor, Ace and the new team have to solve this mystery of what's going on with these abductions. They realise the situation is much more serious for the whole of humanity than they thought. Um, and they have to Basically, save save humans and all of these teenagers from this awful fate that appears to be awaiting them. Um, and it is very exciting and also really quite frightening. Some pretty rough torture going on at the end. as yeah, well. Yeah,
1: it's actually quite. It's not for young kids. This mm. book, you know, it's a. It's very much a sort of um, young adult. adult yes, book. I thought that. So yes. don't don't buy it for your young children. For a sort of seven year old, it's yeah. more
0: sort of. 12, 13 perhaps. Yes. yes, yes I think so because yeah. it's quite grim some of it. Some of it but you know powerful and you know mm. the, and I think kids at that age they quite like something a little bit gritty as long as it all works out in the end. And there's <laughs> a very nasty mon- of nasty
1: baddie as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this, great uh, baddie. Who was great fun to do the audio voice. I bet. Yeah.
0: Well let's move on to your next object talking of your writing your new writing career uh, <laughs> which is uh, your a wooden writing desk. I'm not going to pretend you've brought it in <laughs> so <laughs> <laughs> so tell us a bit about The Wooden Writing Desk and, and why you've chosen it.
1: I'll describe it first. It's it's a beautiful old, I think it's ash. It's um, like one of those ones that you pull the front down and then it's got a sort of uh, a book cabinet on the top with glass as well. And it's got long drawers and then two short drawers and you probably get the picture now. Mm. So in the late 60s, early 70s, my great-uncle and great-aunt um, had this desk. And it was uh, one of those things at the time where people were getting rid of their old furniture, their sort of wooden stuff, and um, they were getting kind of mica and plastic.
0: All the beautiful furniture that's gone yeah. because we were all suddenly obsessed with all this sort of
1: plastic stuff. Well, I think it's all in my house, luckily, because okay. I don't know, I've always had this love of old furniture. And I was given this desk... And I sat at that desk How and it's old still, were you when you were given it. I think I was probably about ten or eleven. Mm. And um and I sat that desk supported me through my O levels, through my A levels. It's got ink stains. It's even got some of the same things in the pigeonholes that it had when I was growing up. So it's very, very sentimental and I do a lot of work there still. It's always been a, a part of my What I associate with work and Mm -hmm. with, I suppose, creating as well, because I used to write a lot of stories when I was younger as well. I loved... English and I loved writing stories. Um, so Did you I, write I this would book, sit down. Is? I wrote, yes, yeah, some of it at that really? desk. Really? Yeah. Gosh, mm-hmm. that's so interesting. Now on a, now on a laptop.
0: Yes, that, but uh, still the wood is yeah. resonating with yeah. the memories. Mm. As a fan of Doctor Who when you were a girl, I mean, amazing to have that desk to have now written yes. a Doctor Who. Can you imagine Who'd have thought? being able to, via the Doctor, go back in time? What do you think? Do you think that girl would even believe this is all happening? Oh, she'd have thought it was all uh, just, you know, complete. Made up story. Yeah. yeah. Notoriously, with writing sci fi, even though you've got lots of freedom to go anywhere, you also have to impose some sort of internal rules. Otherwise, it's not a satisfying story. Because otherwise, you just say, well, why don't you all just vanish then? Yeah. Did you find that difficult to deal with? Or did you find the opposite that actually the amount of freedom you still had, even within that, made it sometimes a little bit like, oh, God, I could do anything. So what do I pick?
1: I've always liked to write. Realism you know I think the, it's it's the characters that make the story. the plot's gotta work, obviously mm. the doctor his superpower, her superpower is is their brain mm. that's what's so appealing for a lot of the fans is that they have to really think their way out of of situations It's not satisfying as a reader
0: to to have you know oh well it and then it was all a dream mm. you know, yes, and then exactly. they woke up. Did you have to do a lot of research for this? I mean, there's quite a lot of talk about, you know, technology and chemistry and rocket science oh, and all gosh, of this. Did loads. You, did you?
1: Luckily, Steve and Mike are very good at that sort of thing. Right, OK. So, you know, you say, fast car, please. And they come up with, <laughs> oh, yeah, OK. I said, it's got to be an electric car. We've got to save the planet.
0: And when, but when you introduce something like the squidget, which is a kind of sort of alien being that can do anything, is you then have to plug that into our known terrestrial technology yes. and then make the interface between those work from a sort of storytelling point of view. So you have to know about the earthbound technology yes. to introduce an alien if you know yes. what i mean so let's go to your third object now uh, which is not so much an object as a kind of well a sort of slightly abstract uh, which is the view from your living room mm. um so what what is it about that that you find especially inspiring what what is the view we've been lucky
1: enough to find a house um in Hertfordshire which uh, the, the back of the house is all sort of open so where my desk is I sit at my desk and I can look to my left hand side and I see this amazing view and it's uh, sort of a bit of our garden and then a field and it changes, the The landscape changes. Every, every time I look out It's it looks different so you can see a lot of the sky as well and it's forever mm.
0: changing and Depending Is there a on good the season, night sky there as well? There's a really good night sky, so you can, yes. So, you know, this time of year you could still be at your desk and have sort of stars and, yes. yep. and things like that. And do you sit there thinking about what's out there? Yeah, uh, I
1: do. In the mornings, this may sound completely weird, I get up in the mornings and I, I've got this sort of internal voice in my head like we all do, going, Oh, my God, what have I got to do today? Oh, uh, you know, this, that and the other. Blah, blah 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 And then I go downstairs and I open the curtains to this view and the sun is often just rising if it's a nice morning uh and there's maybe a bit of frost on the ground or you know or it's a beautiful sunny morning or whatever what i do is i imagine that we're on a spaceship right. that that i'm this tiny little bit of uh of you know the the this great thing that is not in my control because i can't be quite controlling so it's nice to just get into this sort of like I'm not in control, you know. I don't even know what the next few minutes are going to hold. And I stand there and I think myself into imagining sort of the curve of the Earth and then the sun coming up. And it's not the sun coming up, of course. It's us rolling around towards that direction. So I imagine that I'm on the deck of this spaceship and uh, that we're hurtling through space at However many million miles an hour it is, mm. uh, but it's gr- it's so great to sort of feel that oh that's yes that's di- that's the direction we're going in you know yes. we we're, we're rolling around at this at
0: this massive speed, and do you think that ritual you have in the morning has helped inform writing? The Doctor Who novel, because that yeah. sense of being on a spaceship and the huge universe out there, and anything could be happening out there, and you're part of it, as you say, hurtling through space yeah, and time. I, I think it, it must, it must do, you know, be, because
1: thinking in that way, the worries of the world disappear, but also the fact that um, we don't know anything and and also this wonderful feeling like i was talking to a friend of mine who's uh, who knows a lot more about this than me he, he's a sort of you know cosmologist in a way that most kind of quantum physicists and scientists and they say yeah of course there must be something out there we can't imagine how huge the universe is it's just not within our you know our ability to to think about it or conversely This is a miracle, Mm. you know, that we are, this is miraculous, a blip that we are here, which is equally as wonderful,
0: really. Yes. I do remember asking Professor Brian Cox whether there was life out there of some form. He did say quite gratifyingly that in his opinion, for this planet to be the only life in the universe is more unbelievable, actually, than something else being out there so um Mm. yeah I'm jealous of your view I'd love to be able to stand there and look out and pretend I'm on a spaceship and think I'm going out there now and it's
1: brilliant because also it's really connected me much more with you know this whole question about climate change at the moment and I'm aware that I'm a guardian of this land for the time that we're living in this house and there's a, a green woodpecker that comes most mornings and there's uh there's the beautiful birds and then sometimes I'll wake up in the morning and there'll be some deer that have just come out of the cops and and I think wow it's it's up to me and my family to respect the earth and to Mm. respect what we have which I think is a very kind of Doctor Who-ish thing you know this sort of um, yes uh you know let's look after it let's let's really love what we've got because we might not have it for much longer.
0: I feel like the anarchy of the doctor would quite like something like Extinction Rebellion and yes, probably in a but to go back to the book A Childhood's End and we have talked quite a lot about the squidget. Yes.
1: Uh,
0: which uh, I, you loved. Love squidget, I love that I love the squidget,
1: yeah. I can see you having one on a key
0: ring. <laughs> yes, please. Just to fix any little tech <laughs> yeah. problem I have at any Phones time. And, yeah. Um now we normally play an extract from the audiobook. But as you have narrated it yourself and you're here now, we wondered whether you would mind reading a little clip from the book now for us live for the podcast. Will you do that? I would love to. Thank Uh, you. And will it be, could it be about the squidgets? Could we introduce the squidget? I think that would be very nice. Okay, thank you very much. So let's hear now from the book of A Childhood's End, where Ace, otherwise known as Dorothy, discovers a component from an alien vessel and transports it back to her workshop to have a look. As far as she'd been able to tell, the entire ship was
1: powered by a small spherical device humming softly to itself. Having located what she assumed to be the links to the engine controls, She was about to start dismantling it when a low, burbling chirrup from deep inside the workings of the ship made her stop. The links weren't just mechanical. They were alive. Connecting the power unit to the controls of the ship was some kind of semi-biological entity, a symbiotic engineer. A squidgy gadget, Dorothy murmured, looking at it now. Squidget. She reached out a tentative hand to the creature, just as she had when she'd first discovered it. The thin, pulsing tentacles shimmered at her touch. Of course she was no closer to finding out how it worked than she had been on day one. The power source seemed inexhaustible, and adaptable to virtually any scenario. She'd been using it to power all the lights and equipment here at the Batcave for years, and as far as she could tell, the thing was barely ticking over. The one thing that she had discovered was that the squidget responded to voice control and that had made what she was about to do at the Space Defence Centre an awful lot simpler.
0: That was a childhood's end written and read by my guest Sophie Aldred and the audiobook is available to download on the 6th of February on iTunes and just to remember to subscribe to the Penguin podcast so you don't miss our free fortnightly episodes and also you can find us on your Alexa enabled device well I've loved chatting to you as I said you were my companion when I was a when I was watching growing up so your your voice just even hearing that just sort of takes uh. me back just to recap then I've, it's been a great Really fascinating and some brilliant insights and new sort of bits of info and behind the scenes stuff. But do you know anything about the new series? Is is Ace involved in any way? What's uh, what sort of do you know what's coming up? Well the only thing I do know that is that Ace
1: isn't involved
0: which okay. is <laughs> which is a real shame. Another time later yeah, later yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah
1: we're waiting for that to happen. Yes. But um no uh, Dr Who it was ever thus the secrets are guarded incredibly closely. Mm. So um and it's amazing actually how um people respect that. I remember in the old days we used to have to um Give our scripts in even nobody could leave any scripts lying around. This was in the days before shredding and
0: stuff, so they put them in big black bin bags and I don't know what they used wow. to do. Wow! Uh, because now away you can somewhere. sometimes get scripts. You know when you get your name watermarked on the script, yes. and so if you leave it on a train. Yeah, yes. They Everyone, know. they'll know it was you. Yeah. Yes. yes, it's always a bit intimidating to get a script yes. with your name just isn't watermarked <laughs> across the back of it, and you have to sign non-disclosure agreements That's and all right. kinds of things. Yeah, you yeah. have to be
1: very, very careful. And of course, it's really, really to protect the viewer because, mm. I mean, we all want to. We we think we want to know. It's like doing a magic trick, isn't it? You think you want to know how the magic works. But actually, when you do, it's a bit disappointing. Yes. So same with Doctor
0: Who. Well, that's good. I'm glad in a way then that we're, we are not going to participate in ruining the next series for no. any fans out there. No, um, for, for me and you as well. Exactly. And do you still keep <laughs> up with watching oh, yes. it? yes. Do you? Yeah, definitely. Brilliant. Um, well, uh, A Childhood's End by Sophie Aldred uh, is the new Doctor Who novel. And thank you very much for joining me today and having a chat about it all. Thank you
1: so much. It's been fantastic to talk to you. Franny Langton is on trial for murder, but did she commit the crime? London is buzzing with rumours, while the enslaved Franny maintains her innocence. This is her version of events, her story. But how could she murder the only person she has loved?
0: The difficult thing is to know where to start. My life began with some truly hard things, but my story doesn't have to, even though nothing draws honesty out of you like suffering. The receiving of it, but the giving also. I was born at Paradise, and I was still a small girl when they took me from the slave quarters up to the house. For a long time, I thought that was a stroke of luck, but it was nothing more than the liar's habit of trying to make fact better than truth.
1: A gothic and haunting tale from the heart of Georgian London. The audiobook edition of The Confession of Franny Langton is available to download now.